Hello and welcome to Getting to Know, a podcast where I sit down with the people I love and just get to know them a little better. My name is Oliver Sale and on today's episode I sat down with witch, writer and wonder Rachel Strickland to talk all things magical, ugly and forgiving. But before we get into that, a couple of things. Gremlins are mentioned a few times throughout this episode. In Rachel's mentorship program, The Audacity Project, or TAP, gremlins are what we call negative or restrictive thought processes that might limit or completely stop an artist from creating the work they want to make. Talisman words, which are also mentioned, are part of the project. These are three words that act as a touchstone for artists trying to make decisions and develop their work further. Links for everything will be in the show notes, along as names of everyone we mention. And with that, let's start the show. Hi. Hello. Uh, it's super, super nice to see you. Uh, Always a pleasure. And to have you here in the virtual space. Before we get into, like, interesting philosophical conversation... How are you? How are you doing? How is quarantine treating you? I'm fine. Yeah? Mm-hmm. It's a tenuous fine. And yeah, in normal life, I can wake up and I have expectations of myself. I'm like, I'm probably going to feel like this because yeah. that's how I operate most days. But even though my daily life is not severely disrupted, my internal life definitely is. And my capacity is not uh, as dependable. Yeah, I think that's something that I've kind of been dealing with as well, actually. this My day-to-day life is very similar. And I think this is what's hard, is that it's on the inside that the, so much change is happening. Yeah, so much of how we function and how we rely on ourselves as people is kind of being shifted. Um, yeah. And for people that don't know who you are, and what you do. I mean, you're a woman of many hats. So, like, <laughs> I guess pick a couple of hats that you want to to be identified as. Um, yeah, well, I do have a lot of hats, but to me, they're all the same hat. It's all mm. just aspects of how I naturally kind of want to walk through the world. Yeah. I'm a creative mentor, and I love working with creatives and especially creatives that are somewhat blocked. That's mm. my favorite because I'm very familiar with that terrain and how to navigate it. And it's a very uh, rewarding journey for me to take with people on an individual level. And I also like to make art. Yeah. Yeah, I art. I, like, I also do the art. As well. <laughs> Create art. <laughs> To varying degrees of success, just depends on what success means to the individual talking about it. Mm. I actually wanted to talk about, this was like my later notes, but I'll come to it now. Um, mm. Because you are someone that believes very much in the idea of like, hell yes, or not at all. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the ways that for me, at least you helped me unblock some of the stuff that I was, that was rattling around in my head. Um so I want to like, I guess want to talk about where that came from. Like, where did you, when did you start saying hell yes to things and how did that 
ideas that have come sort of come into your life? I think that came from sometime uh, in university, and I had I just didn't have the tools to make、mm. choices for myself, and I wanted everything.、Mm. So at some point, I just <laughs> I just decided that the thing that I wanted more than anything else was probably worthy of consideration, and then I was like, yeah, yeah, hell yeah. Hell yes, I'm going to do that, and it it was so, and not to say that I didn't make fuck ton of mistakes because of course I did, but they were all worth it, every single one of them, because they were all given to me by a hell yes. That was the kind of conviction that I could stand behind. I think that's something that a lot of people really struggle with, me included, taking the mistakes as part of the hell yes. Right. Like it's like a, if I commit fully to this, then it doesn't matter if it doesn't work, because I committed fully to it. Yeah, there's no regrets then, and I really、mm. don't like regrets. No. No, not a fan. So one of the other things I wanted to talk about was one of your, I guess not many hats because they're all the same hat. Ah,、uh, the pointiest part of your single hat. Ah.、Uh, <laughs> Because <laughs> you are, I'm listening. yeah, you are、um, a witch. Is this the word we would use for it? I just love that word. Yes, it's a great word. word. And it was kind of because you introduced me a lot to a lot of this space of things, and now we sit as we're talking. My tarot cards are actually laid out in front of me. Like this is something that you introduced into my life. That's very important. And I kind of wanted to talk about how that came into your life, and then how it's influenced you. So I guess first part, how did this come into your life? Honestly, it was there always.、Hmm. I just didn't know what it was. I I was raised in a in a very Christian household、hmm. by、uh, strong Christian parents, and they still are, and I I love them for it. But even when I was a child, I can remember around Samhain, like around October thirty first,、mm. thinking, "Well, I need to go outside so that I can make a circle with my brothers and sisters." At like age eight, okay. And I wrote this down, and I would draw pictures of it, and it was completely natural to me. And I would go outside, and you know, I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. Like, well,、oh, I'll just. You know, make a circle because we need to give thanks、mm. for the new year. And then it wasn't until the advent of the internet, because when I was nine, there wasn't internet widely available in American households、uh, or in any <laughs> households really.、Uh, then I started looking up these kind of keywords because I wondered if there was anything to them, and then I realized there was long traditions. Of these practices,、um, so I can only assume that much of that is just coded into our DNA, and it doesn't make me special. You know, it's it's a commun it's a way of being in community and of observing spirituality. That is so cool. Yeah, it's a really interesting way of having, I guess, having proof in a way of the like. 
the depth to which these practices like go in who we in how we experience the world i think often we think of spirituality as something that kind of either our parents give us or like that comes to us as we get older and as we study more especially for someone like me who grew up in an atheist household and developed a spiritual practice later in life <laughs> i'm later in life when i was like 18 <laughs> i was so old um right. yeah but to see like, oh, this was something that you were already engaging with without it being a spiritual thing, without it being like uh, someone was teaching you these practices, just like this is a one to desire. Because obviously there are all, I think we all have those experiences in us of like, mm-hmm. I mean, I remember like reading a tarot deck when I was very, very young. It didn't mean anything to me back then. And now it seems like very clearly symbolic of some experience. Yeah, so you found... The internet came into your life and told you that you were in fact a witch. (laughs) How does that change your experience when you went from like just having these kind of coolings and desires and then suddenly finding out that there was like an identity or a a practice associated with it? How did that change for you? At first, it was more just like having permission to to be the thing that I already was. Mm. And that and permission is huge. Yeah. A permissive atmosphere just like it's okay to be the thing that you are yeah and like the word which does didn't even come into my sphere until much later of course i knew what a witch was but it was the discovery of like the solar festivals and the fire festivals mm. of like pre-celtic paganism that really hit home for me because that just made sense to me right. the wheel of the year and all that there's the the natural observation of the cycles of life. And mm-hmm. then I was able to, there was just more information for me to take in, like so much more. Even <laughs> even in the early days of the internet, there was still information. Uh, so it really, it was very enriching because it wasn't just me searching through my DNA that's really interesting because the the narrative that it reminds me of most is actually the uh the, like the queer experience in a way um mm-hmm. i remember when i first started having quote unquote queer experiences in my life it felt very strange because there wasn't uh i didn't know fully the context or the language around surrounding my identity and when i found out like that there were words and ideas surrounding these things uh, that I wasn't gay, but that I could find other language. Yeah, this permission to be something that was in us already was so liberating. And I think it's interesting to make this, in a way, to make this comparison between like spirituality as a core identity, uh, mm-hmm. like hard, a hard-coded identity, because I do think that we often consider it as like like secondary to to our center in a way, like maybe not if you speak to someone deeply religious or deeply spiritual, a lot of Christians will consider Christ like part of their core identity. But from the outside, it seems like kind of a choice in a way that you choose to put it, so you have your center part and then you put something on top. But what this saying says is like, no, these things are part of who who you are when you're kind of when you're born or pre-birth, which is really powerful. Yeah, pre-name. Pre-name. Can we talk about this state? Because this is something else that was introduced to me by you and, and Chantel, who 
uh, is one of the people that introduced that brought us into the same space. Um, mm-hmm. What is this pre-state? The space before name? Yeah. So that that's a concept that came to me from Chantal. Right. So I believe that that comes from her own spiritual practice as a devotee of Adida. And that one of his teachings was, um, and I don't know it well, so I don't mm. want to butcher it, but the time before you were conceptualized as a human being that you still existed and whatever was true then is still true now, but now right. you have an ego. Now I think that's it. Uh, yeah. You'll have to ask her. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think we'll probably get to that at some point. Moving from witchiness into back towards art, kind of, I mean, they're the same thing in many ways. Um, yeah. You've started a new creative process or an old yes. creative process that's now happening <laughs> <laughs> again. Uh, yeah. Uh, with this new piece, uh, Monstrous Feminine. If, yes. Yes. I mean, it's like the most, I feel it's the most explicitly you title of anything I've ever heard. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> because it seems to capture quite a lot of who you are. What is this process like for you? How are you m- making the work at the moment? Making being the operative word. Because this, the concept has been quite literally haunting me for years. And it's kind of a trope, the trope of my life, because the monstrous feminine is those aspects of ourselves that are shut away because they are uncomfortably alive and almost across the board aspects of the divine feminine. And that when something gets locked away, it can become monstrous because it can't die. So that's what happens to things when you take away their ability to have will. And since it's, it's been a trope of my entire life's work, (laughs) my entire 37 years, all of it, And so it just, it kind of feels like I'm still trying to say the same thing, but maybe this time I can say it. Mm. So the creation of the piece uh, is actually happening now. So that's very exciting for me instead of just being theorized. And for a long time, it was just, it was precious to me. And I was intimidated by it because it was really important that I do it justice. So of course I didn't do anything at all. Yeah. Which is bullshit, but I'm fallible to bullshit as well. And, uh, and I got, I have, um, gotten a mentor for myself because the piece is starting to seem like it's a piece of theater. I've never done theater. I've done circus. I'm a dancer. I don't talk. Which you do. Now. Which I do. Now. <laughs> I've recently learned to talk. <laughs> yes, that's been a new development. Yeah. But that uh, caused me to want to reach out to someone who who knew how to make something like this and couldn't believe it. She said yes. Her name is Erin Letty. She's amazing. She lives in Portland, Oregon. And uh, we've been working together for a couple of weeks and... Um, starting to get some scenes together. How did you know that it was theatre? Most of the work that I make starts with images. 
and the images were really and still are very visceral, um, but they're not centered around um, any particular kind of aerial work mm. or technique or circus, it, but it was a very clear character. You're like, I think this is what people call theater when it's not necessarily based around movement. There's definitely going to be movement in it because that's what I do, but uh, it just, it could be viewed through another lens and that was very exciting. Yeah, And I could still be wrong. It's still in its infancy. I don't know what it's going to be when it's born. That's so exciting though, to take something so precious to you and then to be like, you know, actually I think that it exists in the space that I don't know yet. Mm. I think often we can find like our, we find our precious baby of a thing. And then we want to like, we want to do it so much justice that we put it into uh, the boxes that we think will do it justice without letting it breathe into the world, you know? And it's totally gremlins. Yeah, yeah. It's absolutely, it's the precious gremlin. It's the golem of gremlins. And I didn't even realize it until I was actually starting work on this thing. And at the same time, I was sending in stories to get first edits. Yeah. And it was the same experience because both of them were like really, really important to me. So, of course, I just sat on them for the longest time. And then you send it out into the world to either get feedback or get notes or get an assignment from your mentor. And you feel wonderful. And then the feedback comes in and the assignments come in and you're like, fuck. Now I have to tinker with it. I have to touch the thing under the museum glass because when it's an idea, it's perfect and it can't be improved upon. The concept is so engaging and alluring. Mm. And then you start making it and you're going to fuck it up. You're just going to. You have to be allowed to make a huge mess of it and then face that mess. Which I think is like, I think for a lot of artists, kind of the hardest thing of all, because we are such precious people. Like, we have to have seen something so beautiful to want to do this, right? Like, no one comes into the art world going, everything's ugly and shit. You come into the art world going, something is beautiful and I want to make beautiful things. That's been my common experience, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and then to be like, oh, but maybe I have to ugly it up for it to be beautiful is like such an impossible lesson to learn. And especially with things that are like, it was when you were talking about um, how this is your kind of your like life's work in a way, or like the life's journey to this thing. And I was thinking about when we first met and the work that I was making at the time, which was very much a monstrous masculine experience. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And this kind of like, I think this was something that really, for me, being able to see that you understood the thing that I was trying to say was one of the things that really drew me to you as a, a person. One of many, many, many things that drew me to you. Because I think this is something... Um, like, I remember when you shared with me the video of you climbing the span set on the aerial work, on the, mm-hmm. on the hoop, and me being like, this is not beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's so right. fucking ugly, and I love mm-hmm. it. And I love it's, it too. Yeah, it's <laughs> but it's so cool because it's like 
it's this rawness that I think that we, when viewed from the outside, it seems perfect in a way. Oh, I'm so I'm I'm so there with you because I think that ugliness and beauty are both very valuable, and in fact, I, like you said, ugly things can be beautiful, scary yeah. things, and a lot of the imagery that I find most compelling is very dark, and illicit, and I can't get enough of it. Uh, heavily influenced by the Southern Gothic and by horror movies, I find beauty in those things because I think there's value in the fear of them I think that fear is such a useful tool that we so underappreciate as creatives I mean one of the things that we like is obviously super prevalent in tap is finding uh finding your gremlins which is basically finding your fears and identifying them and seeing them um and that process for me was so rewarding to like look at a fear and go that that there that's what I'm scared of that's what I'm really scared of um mm, mm-hmm. and the process of of seeing that and then turning it into something useful is kind of so incredibly rewarding going back towards our our talk at the beginning of of which identity and which thinking witchy thinking Obviously, that aspect of your life is very focused on the feminine, right? Like a lot of people in your life are, a lot of those, the people that I've met who have those same faiths and beliefs are women who I think are also very in touch with this aspect of you, this monstrous feminine part of the the experience of life. How is your witchcraft influencing the process of making this work or has influenced the process of making work in the past? It's interesting that you bring up the prevalence of uh, seeking the feminine. It's at the beginning of my journey and for much of my earlier work, it was the masculine that I was more invested in. And in fact, for a couple of years, most of the characters that I made were intended to be either fully male or completely androgynous. That's just where I was at the time and what was interesting to me. And I wanted to, I didn't want to leave any stone unturned in that work and made a lot of work. And one day I was like, I think I don't need to be in drag today. I think maybe I'll just see what's under this other rock. Hmm. And that just brings us to where we are now. It's interesting because you talked about, again, queer, um, the kind of queer relation of like you talking about being in drag in a way. And mm. like, there's so much to talk about with drag, but so much, it's yeah. interesting this idea of kind of having, uh, using performance as a way to, to portray another part, another idea of you. What what clicked for you? And when, when did you go, oh, I'm going to do... I'm not going to dress up for this one, or I'm going to dress up more like a woman. Uh, that's a good question. When did that click? It was probably after we staged Icarus. Um, Icarus is a like a half-length show, about 30, 35 minute show that I made with Meredith Starnes, and we debuted it at the New Orleans Fringe Festival in 2012, I think. 
And uh, Icarus was my character and was very, like, a sexless character. But I, I really wanted to embrace what was masculine in that character, and uh, it morphs throughout the, the piece, and, and it comes to reveal that Icarus has been hiding his femininity from mm. the other character. And it was at the conclusion of that show, which was just a big epic piece of my life. Like, I think I said what I wanted to say for now. Yeah. And it might come back and it might not. And I don't feel that I'm really in control of that. <laughs> but and I started to be interested in other in other things. Hmm. And I wanted to tell you that um well, earlier you said tap. Yes. And I didn't understand what you were talking about. Like at oh. first I thought you meant tap dancing. I'm like, what is he about to say? But you meant the audacity project. And that when you were going through those exercises um, and how I just loved the way that you embodied that search. And I've shared that blog post that you wrote, the personification of your gremlins and like just really inviting them to the table and giving them outfits and vocations you're like, so who are you and where do you come from and why are you here? Ah, and then just listing them all out. I loved that. Ah, yeah, that was such a liberating process for me. And I think as well at the time, like, I really needed to address some of the things that were holding me back. Because when I wrote that article, that was right before I decided to move here to Norway. Like that mm -hmm. was like the build up in a way. And so kind of similar to, to Icarus for you. Um, I kind of felt like I said a lot of the things in that, the show that I was doing at the time, I feel like I said a lot of the things that I needed to say as the person that I was at that time. And writing the Gremlin article was kind of my way of saying like, okay, I see all the things that were holding me back. I see all the things that were stopping me from going where I wanted to go and saying the newer things. I felt like I'd been kind of repeating myself in some ways in my art before that. Um, just like stuck on this like holiness and spirals and turns and da da da, da and dancing with, and I love dancing with people, but there was a lot of dancing with people violently in my, in my work prior to um, and even in the show in Ensom, the show that I was doing at the time, like there's one duet at the end, which is super aggressive. And I kind of felt like I was bottled inside of that anger. Um, and then finally, like seeing the things that were holding me back from just being a person. Yeah. It was such a liberating experience, which is now where I get to plug the audacity project and recommend that people go and try it out. Uh <laughs> <laughs> but be warned like don't do it if you want your life to stay the same because it will not happen yeah. you'll cry a few times many times <laughs> and then you'll probably cry like three or four weeks after you're finished because you remembered something that you said or did during the audacity project and you're like oh my god everything is changing um <laughs> that's beautiful Thank you. but where for you when did the audacity project start and how did it kind of become a thing because being a like accepting the role of mentor or teacher is quite a 
can seem like quite a big step. So where did that come from? Do you know, in its very earliest stages, it was a workshop that I pitched. Um, I was traveling to Seattle, where I had lived for a while, to teach some workshops and to see friends. And one of the workshops I pitched was like a roundtable discussion about best practices uh, to take uh, when moving from amateur to professional, because mm. I saw people just making the same mistakes that I had made over and over again. And I was very willing and happy to share that information. Yeah. Uh, and I would have loved for that information to be available when I was making those mistakes. Uh, so that's how it started. It started as like a $30 workshop that took an hour and for whatever reason people feel safe coming to me and asking me questions yeah. maybe it's because I'll tell them an honest answer I'm not sure but for whatever reason it is I do honor that and it was it was that happening a lot right that made me and and just a feeling of of rightness like I loved being able to fill that space for them and it felt very precious and like I wanted to honor that so I made the workshop longer and it became two hours it became three hours and then I would follow them for a year to see as we would spend this like intense three-hour period together and everyone would be like super inspired by the end and they'd want to go out and like put their balls on the table and like really get things done. Yeah. And it, it wasn't long enough to foster actual lasting catharsis. Yeah. I just needed more time. So I made the audacity project and I made it eight weeks long and that seems to be a good <laughs> An effective chunk of time not always but most of the time yeah i think it's i mean you say it's eight weeks eight weeks long but as someone who took it first uh two years ago right yeah or a I guess year so. ago uh and then a again year yeah, yeah a year ago and then again yeah. in september it's eight weeks but it's really like your whole life I think what's great about it and what's great about you as a teacher is that the practices are not one-time lessons, but these right. are the kind of lessons that you come back to when you go, every time you come back to it, there's something deeper. And you're never going to know all the answers, right? Because you're inquiring into yourself. And yeah. since yourself is always changing, I, I don't tell everyone this, but when I post a cycle of the Audacity Project, I go through the project with them. Mm. I do the self-branding worksheet and I ask myself those questions and the answers are different every time. Yeah. It's like, and I wrote the questions and they're still not easy. <laughs> There's still a shock every time. And I'll be like, oh, damn it. Now I have to answer. This is a really hard question. Can't believe people are doing this. <laughs> I can't believe people can. are choosing to do this. <laughs> One of my uh, favorite parts of uh of the audacity project and one of the things that i come back to more frequently like even without going back to the project itself just thinking about is this idea of talisman words because i think that these are 
I think this is maybe the most genius thing of all of the many genius things within the Audacity project is finding like a clarity of temporary identity, you mm. know, because they mm -hmm. are temporary words. They change over time. Um, and I wanted to ask you, because I'm in the, in the process of being very nosy, uh, what are your current words? I was just thinking about this yesterday and I yeah. think that they're, um, they're in flux a bit. Alchemist is almost always one for the past couple of years. Creatrix is another. And I think the word feast is, is pretty accurate right now. <laughs> so of course you would ask me that question. I mean, it's a... Uh... It's an apt description. <laughs> it's an apt description for many things, but it's an apt description for you. And especially, I guess, if you're going into... Thank you. The feast, in a way, right? Like, you've been preparing to make this thing for a long time. Mm -hmm. And now it's like, okay, I've, I've cooked the turkey. I've made the cranberry sauce. The potatoes are in the oven. You know, it's like everything's finally ready. And it's like, now you're just laying the table... Oh, it's so exciting. As, yeah, I'm so excited. I think I might be at least as excited as you are for a piece that <laughs> I have nothing to do with. Well, you do, actually. You I do? Because you're, you're, yeah, you're, you're part of my life. If we've got through two creative intensives, that yeah. leaves a mark. It does. Yeah. It has to. And the Audacity Project, twice. Which really leaves a mark. <laughs> yeah, it leaves a mark. But yeah, I'd say that like this is... You're you're part of this. Mm. You're in there. It's an honor. And I think it was like a year. I think I'm coming up on my year anniversary for launching the Patreon, and that was that was my way of uh, telling myself that the work that I created was as important as what I could help other people accomplish. And that by not doing it, I was doing the same thing that I, I witness in people all over. It's so much easier to give than it is to receive. And you'll get paid better in a lot of ways for being a coach and for being an artist. But that doesn't absolve you of your duty to make your own work. So that's kind of when I started laying out the table, I think. I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> it's time. It's time. Do I get to ask you a question? Do you want to ask me a question? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Go ahead. Because this, this experiment of yours is diving into inquiry, into people that you love in your life and what they believe. So what do you believe? Right now, I think mostly I believe in forgiveness. Um... A lot of, there's been like a lot of big change in my life, a lot of uh, passing of people and animals and uh, opportunity. These things have kind of vanished from my life and embracing that process as an act of forgiveness. Like how can I forgive myself for being sad, for being... Uh, happy when I feel like I should be sad, 
which is a huge part of the grieving process for me. Um, yeah, so right now I really believe in forgiveness. Forgiveness mm-hmm. of myself, mm-hmm. forgiveness of others. Um, and that's kind of why I wanted to do this show is that I wanted to, I guess, kind of with what you were saying previously, but like give myself permission to have a lot of different kinds of experiences by seeing that they're happening in other people. Go, okay, I see that. Oh, okay, I see that. Oh, okay, I see that. And like acknowledge that there are lots of ways to live life. So it's okay to mess it up. I forgive you. Does that help? (laughs) So um, one of the other like mentor figures in my life, uh, a woman called Kerry Nichols, uh, she's a dance teacher, creator, crazy, wonderful person. And uh, one of her exercises that she does in her classes is that she often like, you know, on day three of a five day week, she'll come and say like, okay, so what's your intention for the day? And then everyone has an intention and they, they share them with people and go around the room talking about intention. And when, as you dance, you think about your intention. Mm. And uh, I did one of her workshops back in, must've been November. Uh, so not long after I just kind of finished the end of the, the Audacity project for the second time. And uh, she asked me one day what my intention was. And I said, uh, I think it's forgiveness. And so then as we were going through class, she would walk past me and I'd be like doing a balance on one leg and shaking. And she'd be like, forgive yourself. And then I'd be like rolling around on the floor doing something strange. And she'd be like, forgive yourself. And it's such a relieving experience to be told like, you know, that thing that you did, whatever it was, I'm not even going to ask what it was, but it's okay. Like, it's so good. You're good. Um, yeah, I think forgiveness is greatly underrated and underutilized. I agree. Greatly underutilized. Radical self-compassion. Yeah. And radical compassion for other people. Mm-hmm. You know? I think, like, forgiving someone is kind of the most generous act that you can you can do and it starts with forgiving yourself like all true forgiveness of other people starts from the forgiveness of your own part in what's happening um yeah radical forgiveness is pretty good that's very liberating the threefold law definitely comes into play (laughs) um that which you put out comes back to you times three because when you forgive someone else, you free yourself. Like a lot of times they don't even know. Mm. If like, say if you, if you are harboring anger for someone and you choose to forgive them, you get all that energy back. Though it's not intended to be self-serving, but it ends up being so. Which I think is like a beautiful, a beautiful way to function. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to sit down and just chat with you. Um, yeah, this has been the, the easiest, most fun interview I've ever had. I'm glad. That's what I'm going for. Yeah. <laughs> it worked. Um, before we go fully, where can people find you if they would like to find you? They can find me at Rachel Strickland Creative 
com. That's also my Instagram handle. I'm very easy to find. Yeah. If you Google Rachel Strickland and Ariel or Creative, you'll find me more ways than you'd like. <laughs> or just the perfect <laughs> number of ways. We'll see. <laughs> You're such a joy, Oliver. Thank you. My pleasure. Uh, and the people who are listening to this, go and give Rachel money on her Patreon. Because it's... Aww. The thing is, right now, they don't even have to give you money to get the good stuff, right? Is it still free? Not all of it, but quite a bit of it is is public. Yeah. And uh, you have some very sage wisdom that has been super helpful for me in this time of madness. Um, so maybe it'll be helpful for the people who find this. Thank you. I'd be honored. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode, which was recorded, edited, and produced by me, Oliver Sale. Special thanks to Rachel Strickland for sitting down with me today and for supporting me in all of my craziest endeavors. If you'd like to find out more about her, head over to her Instagram at Rachel Strickland Creative or to Patreon, where it's just Rachel Strickland. If you'd like to find out more about the show, follow me on Instagram at Oliver Sale Creator or check out my website, Oliver Sale Dance, where you'll find the blog posts we mentioned as well. Thank you so much for listening, and remember, it's okay to make it ugly.